Hey everyone, welcome to the Sneaker History Podcast, where we dive into the people, stories, and iconic moments that have helped make sneakers a global phenomenon. If you've ever told someone that you like their kicks, then you're in the right place. Before we lace up this episode, here's a little teaser for you. Stick around to the end of each episode for the last shot question. It's a chance to test your sneaker knowledge and engage with our community. I've also recently started a newsletter to share my knowledge from nearly two decades of experience working in the footwear industry. You can find the link to that below or go to sneakerhistory.com slash newsletter for a weekly deep dive into the biggest topics in the sneaker business. All right, now that the business is taken care of, grab your favorite pair of kicks and let's get started with the episode. Jordan trying to shake off Starks. Oh, what a move! Against Gil, the crowd on its feet. Allen for the win! To the Sneaker History Podcast. What up, what up? Welcome back to the Sneaker History Podcast. My name is Nick Ingvall, and I'm with my guy, Mike Guillory, tonight to talk some sneakers. What's going on, man? How you doing? No, man, I'm doing good. The Rockets just beat the Clippers. Uh, spoiler alert if you guys didn't watch the game. Uh, yeah, it's a good day. Yes, sir. Um, Got a lot of a lot of interesting news on the uh, business front tonight for to talk about. So uh, we'll get into that in just a minute. But we want to, you know, as as usual, shout out um, a review that was left for us on iTunes. This one's from Germs Face Killer, and it says, "Really enjoy the history lessons and the insights these guys have. I always feel like I've learned something after every episode, and it gives me a much gives me a better appreciation for the sneakers aside from the way they look." Shout out to Germs Face Killer. Uh, appreciate the review on iTunes. If you have a moment, go ahead and, and drop us a review on iTunes. Let us know how, how we're doing, good or bad, indifferent, whichever. You know, if you're listening to the podcast, we would appreciate it if you take the time and leave us a review. <laughs> if you're really interested in more of the podcast, you can also check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash sneakerhistory. We drop a new episode of the podcast every week, and typically we have some some other random news and merch and all that stuff that kind of lands in there too, that we uh, keep exclusively for those people. And it's as low as five bucks a month, so head over there if you want to support us in that way. Yeah, go ahead and do it. You guys won't you won't be disappointed. We got a lot of uh, uh, a lot a lot of interesting things, a lot more humor in there as well. So you guys let us know how you like it. And we appreciate you. Yeah, definitely. And and uh, if you if you check out this week's episode on Patreon too, we we do a thing where you know people can ask us to to go a little bit deeper on subjects that maybe we don't touch completely on um, on the regular podcast, or maybe it's just something they're thinking about. So if you're a Patreon member, you can leave us you know suggestions for topics, questions for us to discuss. And you can even, you know, ha- have us help you hunt down sneakers if you're if you're looking for random, you know, sneakers or whatever, whatever. So anyway, yeah, check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash sneaker history. So uh, let's see, I think uh, we, we got so much news going on here. Uh, where do you want to start, Mike? Um, heck, let's go ahead and. Uh... You want to start with a bulls at Nike cutting off Amazon? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, so it looks like uh, Nike has come out and uh, I guess you were able to buy, you know, sneakers directly uh, from Amazon as opposed to going to the Nike website. And, of course, Nike's doing their best to cut out the middleman. Um, but it looks like Nike will stop selling their product directly to Amazon which is going to end the two-year relationship with the retailer. Um, I mean, clearly, I mean, Nike has their own plans. They're, they're trying to do direct-to-consumer now. So any, any kind of a competition or anything, you know, not adding to the bottom line, they're trying to, to get rid of and try to stop that process. So it uh, looks like it was a bit of a setback for Amazon, which at this point has been trying to get different brands to get on their site, bigger brands. Um, so, I mean, I see what Nike's trying to do. 
see how it kind of sucks for Amazon. But I mean, I've really, it's kind of hard for me to shed a tear for Amazon knowing how much people buy from them on a daily basis, not just sneakers. I mean, I, I've never gone to Amazon looking for sneakers. I maybe I'm in a minority on that one, but good thing is if you are, if that's where you bought your Nikes from, you're, you're, you're in luck. They're not going to be taking those goods off. So anything that's been, you know, already in their inventory, is going to still be available to be sold and then independent sellers. So if someone's reselling something through Amazon, which I didn't know they did. Um, I guess they're still going to be able to do that as well. Uh, what do you think about that, Nick? Did, did you ever buy a, a pair off, off Amazon? I mean, I've never bought a pair off of Amazon, but I've had friends that have sold on Amazon. You know, it's it's been a, a few years for most of them. But, you know, when I think when people were looking for alternatives to sell on eBay, a lot of resellers kind of used uh Amazon as a platform because you know you just got so many people shopping there that it it makes sense to to be a part of it and I think that's probably what Nike thought when they you know started this partnership a couple of years ago with Amazon but it's it's not a surprise to me that they're you know kind of breaking up with Amazon because if you think about the reason that they the reason that they don't work with smaller boutiques is because they want to control the way that they're products are marketed and the, the way that their products are, you know, the way that their message is communicated. And, you know, for the most part, you see them stick with boutiques that are really kind of premium and, and, you know, have like a really, you know, tried and true way of storytelling and presenting the product in a, in a like very, you know, high level, you know, I think of like, Kith or Undefeated or, you know, Bodega and, and, you know, Concepts, those stores always do really good. They've, they've kind of got a good business model for pushing product out that, you know, even, even, you know, less than desirable product looks cool through their lens. And I think that, you know, Nike and Amazon, it didn't even make sense from the beginning because there was no way that these that Nike was going to be able to control enough of the marketing side, you know, the same way that you wouldn't be able to with, with an eBay or, you know, any other kind of platform where you're fitting into their, you know, existing marketplace of a massive amount of consumers. And those consumers don't necessarily want the whole storytelling aspect and, you know, you know, video and, and, you know, high-end you know kind of fashion mm -hmm. luxury photos those kind of things because they're just there to get a deal and you know for nike they're trying to maximize the profit off of their shoes so it, this partnership just didn't make any sense to me i mean maybe there was bigger things behind the scenes like fulfillment i mean i know that amazon obviously hosts most of the websites now um and i, I want to say that nike is is on the aws servers but I think that this is kind of like, you know, I don't know, it just seems like, duh, like, of course, that wasn't going to work out for you guys. You both are too big and you both have, you both have way too much kind of, you know, <laughs> strict guidelines and direction as to the direction for your companies. And that makes total sense. Like, you know, the partnership to me just didn't make sense from the get go. Yeah. And. <laughs> If you guys wonder why I'm kind of kind of laughing, Nick sent me this very amazing uh, listing from Amazon Fashion of the uh, number 66 town men's fashion performance lightweight basketball shoe fire, um, and it is the <laughs> complete and utter ripoff. Oh yeah, it is a $59 version of the Jordan uh, Jordan 13, and the best part of the uh, the description is going to say these are not Jordan. If you care, please don't order. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, Maybe that's one of the reasons they're trying to get out of there. They don't want people getting the misconception that, you know, just a person who's not brand savvy, um, not saying that you have to be, but just someone who's not, someone who's just literally market for a pair of shoes. They don't want them getting confused with a real Jordan 13 with, with you know, some, some knockoff model that someone's put out. They don't want to be associated with something like that and they don't want to lose sales because they'll see a 13 for $200. Then they'll see this, this, this beautiful uh, knockoff for $59. Probably, 
person looking for a deal like Nick was saying is, hey, I'm going to go with the $60 version. It looks like the same thing with a couple small differences. I don't care. I just want new shoes. That's definitely got to be a part of it. You know, Nike, none of these brands do a really great job of policing all the fakes that are out there. And, you know, it'd be impossible for them to, to really go after everybody. But it seems pretty obvious that there's, you know, no shortage of knockoffs, you know, Nike knockoffs on Amazon. So, you know, putting your own product, you know, on the same you know digital shelf as those is is not a good look for nike and you know you you can imagine it like you wouldn't see nike you know doing stuff down on canal street in new york city where all the knockoff stuff is it's just not yeah you know not a uh it's not a good look for their brand to be next to all that stuff and, you know, right. they've got to stay kind of in the, the cool kids like area Soho and, you know, that that kind of de- determines for a lot of people where the real and fake, uh, you know, kind of kind of line lines up. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's, it's it's pretty crazy. So there's a um, there's a handful of, of really uh, interesting knockoffs on uh, on Amazon that uh, we'll, uh, we'll I'll put them on the site <laughs> for tomorrow. So. When you're listening to this, uh, it'll be in the linked in the description. You'll you'll be able to see some of the the crazy. Uh, don't call them Nike knockoffs on Amazon right now. Oh, dude, there's even like a curry. There's like a curry four knockoff that is. This, that's the best one. This, oh my god, I can't wait for you guys to see all these. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean that's an interesting one, and and I think you know probably not a surprise, but. Um, I would say that like I was surprised to see that Nike's stock jumped a pretty significant amount, amount after they announced that they were going to end that partnership with Amazon. So um, I don't know. It's, it's definitely uh, something to, uh, to, to, to keep an eye on, um, see how, how that kind of affects things. Because, you know, I would say that for Amazon, like one of the kind of biggest markets that they're missing is the sneaker consumer. So um switching it up let's uh let's talk a little bit about um some more changes in the uh supply chain coming from adidas adidas uh i I guess there's a couple of things so the first one is uh they're basically going to close down their speed factory which there were speed factories you've seen the speed factory shoes um those were made in either germany or atlanta where the two you know tech speed factory technology was being used for adidas and uh they announced this last week that or earlier this week i should say that they were going to close down those two speed factories and move the technology uh to some of their asian manufacturing locations so the technology for speed fact from speed factory won't be going anywhere but uh it'll just be you know moved to a different place and and those two factories specifically will be shut down um and there was an interesting uh kind of quote that i wanted to read from martin shankland who's a part of the board at adidas so the speed factories have been instrumental in furthering our manufacturing innovation and capabilities through shortened development and production lead times we're, we've provided select customers with hyper relevant product for moments that matter this was our goal from the start. We are now able to couple these learnings with other advancements made with our suppliers, leveraging the totality of these technologies to be more flexible and economic while simultaneously expanding the range of products available. So I don't know, man, what do you think about this one? I mean, I personally have never had any of the speed factory products and I didn't realize that was a reason I, to be completely upfront, I thought the Speed Factory was more or less just there was their way of showing you, hey, this is a running product. Like we're going for speed. That's the way it's portrayed, I guess, in my eyes. I didn't realize it was about the the speed of production, which in that case is actually really cool because you know they're trying to get a product out quick as possible. It's still a quality product. That's cool. How that technology that means you can you're able to possibly lower the price on some uh, some items because. Able, you have a technology that can produce it faster. 
So I'll be real interested to see what happens when it comes to, you know, you know, the ultra boost in the future, if they're going to start using that technology to produce, you know, more this, let's say that the ultra boost becomes super popular again, is that going to be the way they're going to produce it? Or, you know, are they ever going to use it for the Yeezy line? Is that something they would use to help lower the price? I know we're going to get a model here shortly. That's going to have a, a more normal price point. Will that be something they could use in the future to, to help lower that or apparel? I think that'd be something pretty awesome to be able to use, but I, think, I feel like they have a good use for it, whether they shut down the speed factory or they, you know, they're going to use it for something else. I think there's going to be a good use for it. And with Adidas, they've been pretty, um, pretty good about their technology. I mean, sometimes it's a bit pricey because of, um, I guess the time it takes to, to, work out the kinks of technology and get it to work and be mass produced. But I, th I think there's something, you know, good will come out of it eventually. It, who knows? Yeah. It is kind of interesting. Cause I think the, I think, you know, of the way that people are buying merch for, you know, like Astro world or Sunday service or any of this stuff where it's like, it's, it's showing that you were there and you were a part of the event and all that. And, I think that's a huge trend that's not going away. I think that people want to people want to be a part of of like in-person activations, events, concerts, you know, sports, whatever that is, and products and merchandise and all of the things that go along with it just become a way to show that you were a part of something. And I think like, you know, on a much deeper level, we all kind of crave that more and more the more we spend time on the computer. And on you know social media and instagram and twitter and facebook and all these places that aren't real connections with people so i think what's really interesting about this is adidas was really like you know i have to kind of give them props because they were so forward thinking in the way that they approached this that you know they really were thinking like how can we make you know like an am for los angeles an am for you know, London, all of these different like specific releases that were made in fairly limited quantities for a very, you know, targeted either event or, you know, period of time or whatever that is to think of like, to think of it in, in like, you know, like a really high level, they were basically trying to make sneakers that were, you know, almost made as merchandise for events. And that's crazy to me. Like had they, had they gotten, you know, really gotten to be really successful in doing that, it it could have been, and, and maybe it still has the potential to be a, a total game changer about the way you release product, right? I think that we're all kind of craving new ways of releases and, and, you know, we'll actually talk about that in another topic in a little bit here, but you know, we, we all seem to, to run into similar frustrations, whether that's from, you know, bots or, you know, just a lack of opportunity to buy things or the sneakers app crashing on the Nike side, you know, like the, the Adidas app just as equally frustrating when you try to buy Yeezys in a lot of places for people. So this really has potential to be something incredibly special. I think that, you know, being optimistic about it, them moving this into more traditional, like, you know, product production flow and manufacturing flow means that, you know, yeah, you've got the, you've got the time that it takes to, you know, ship from overseas where, you know, having someplace in Atlanta, you can pretty much hit anywhere in the U S within, you know, a few days shipping yeah. time. Same thing with Germany. You can hit almost any place in Europe within a few days shipping time. So that's the downside to them moving this technology back to like their more traditional Asian manufacturing plants, because now you're still in that same like, OK, that's going to take some time to either get shipped over or, you know, you're going to pay a lot more to have it air freighted over, whatever that looks like. That's definitely the downside. If they're able to somehow minimize that shipping time from the factories and speed up the process of manufacturing the way that the speed factory really worked, then there's still a huge, you know, chance that this becomes a much bigger thing for them. And, you know, maybe they're able to scale 
up and even do more stuff more quickly, um, which could be really interesting thinking about like, you know, Kanye's Sunday service or something like that, where, you know, you already have this kind of ongoing tour. How do you create product that, that lines up with, with Kanye's own merch that he's selling? Can you release a Yeezy at, let's say, you know, the top five or whatever stops on the Sunday service tour? Like that would be a, an amazing thing for, for Adidas to accomplish. And for, you know, something like this seems like it could be a step towards actually making that happen in a, in a, in an affordable way, right? Like the cost of manufacturing in, you know, Atlanta or in Germany, uh, I, I can only assume is like exponentially more than the cost of manufacturing in one of the, you know, facilities they've been manufacturing in, in Asia for, you know, whether that's China or Vietnam or wherever else, um, the cost is got to be hugely different. So I think that probably is the kind of end all be all of like, how do they, you know, of them choosing to, to let go of the idea of those two places. Yeah. I mean, if they can get that to be used for different merchandising events, it'd be way nicer to buy a, you know, a $20, you know, tour t-shirt from, you know, Kanye, Pusha T, heck, Sheldon's Gambino, whoever, as opposed to me paying a $50 tour tee because it takes X amount of time for production and freight. So let's get that moving because I, I don't like buying um, $60 Gildan t-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, switching up, uh, we've got a couple, a couple of more stories from both Nike and Adidas, but um, I wanted to jump back over to the Nike side of things for this next news article. Um, you know, we, we've all seen like the struggle of the sneakers app. Um, we've all experienced it firsthand, probably if you're listening to this show. So Nike just <laughs> unveiled a new S 23 NYC studio in Brooklyn that, um, I think it's in Brooklyn or is it in Manhattan? Um, uh, I thought it was Brooklyn. Oh, no, South street seaport. So it is in Manhattan. Oh. Um, so, Basically, the S23 NYC studio is going to be dedicated to evolving the future of sneakers app. And what that means is um, just a lot of interesting stuff that is potentially going to come from this uh, new state of the art facility. Mike, you want to talk a little bit about it? Yeah, fix the sneakers app. <laughs> no, in all seriousness, it's, it's actually really cool because it's actually going to house uh, I think between 85 and 100 employees dedicated to the sneakers app and what the goal is to do is to basically um, review the trends of what you know, us as the consumer are doing on sneakers app the way we're swiping what we're clicking on what we're liking so on and so forth what we're purchasing and to build and produce uh, not only content, but products based on the things that we're liking. Um, their example they gave was that they actually saw that there was a large use of the sneakers app in New York by uh, consumers of, of Dominican descent. And they actually produced a sneaker that was, you know, you know, show some heritage to, you know, the Dominican line, the, the Dominican uh, lineage. And it was a hit with those with those customers. It was just a little experiment to see how it worked. But beyond that, it's showing that Nike's really focusing on that predictive uh, predictive sale. They want to know what we want kind of before we know it almost. Um, so if you're looking at a, I mean, a bunch of Jordan ones on your page, and that's what's going to happen. We may see an influx of. I mean, I know we get a lot already. But you, we may see an influx of, of more Jordan ones, and you know, maybe you know better colorways because sometimes we get a little testy about the colorways we get, or maybe they're going to see there's a bunch of people looking at running shoes. So maybe they'll start producing more classic runners and you know better colors, better collaborations, so on and so forth. But the goal is to, of course, be number one in market share. But they're doing it in a way that we always want them to listen to us. Well, this is how they're listening to us. So. I say, be aware when you're swiping and clicking through sneakers, just know that, hey, they're looking at what you're looking at. So I guess be mindful if that 
makes any sense whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, I think this is kind of like, you know, something that everybody should be thinking about. It's not it's not coincidence that when you talk about, you know, whatever it is you're talking about in your house with all your smart devices listening, that stuff starts popping up on your, you know, ads on YouTube, on the Internet, whatever that is. I don't think that it's a bad thing. I think that most of the time it actually, you know, um, kind of helps. But I think to some extent, it is just something you should be thinking about, you know, not in a like, you know, not in a like, you know, shady kind of way, but like it, it data is used to, you know, target you on every kind of in every angle that it possibly can. Right. And I think that, you know, for the most part, if the companies do it well, it's a good thing and you never have to think about it. And, you know, hopefully Nike is able to do that. Um, it's a little tough with sneaker consumers because generally like we're all so different that, um, you know, you can't really pinpoint and say that, like, this is the stuff that, you know, I would buy or he would buy because it's such a it's such an emotional thing. It's not it's not, you know, something that you can just kind of say, oh, well, you know, he's from this neighborhood, so he's going to buy this. You can do that a little bit, but, you know, you can you can definitely tell when it gets a little too much like that, where it's like, you know, people are like expecting, you know someone in you know new york to always wear tims or someone in you know dc to always wear foams or you know houston and air force ones all these things that become like over the top stereotypes like to to a certain extent they exist because there's truth to them and the other part of it is that you know the the brands tend to flood those areas as soon as they see a trend occur so it's like you know if I'm Adidas and I see that Ultra Boost sell incredibly well in LA, guess what? I just bury these stores in Ultra Boost because we know that more people are wearing them here than elsewhere. And so there's there's challenges that are going to come with this, but I think in general like the idea and the concept behind it is really dope. I think that one having a, you know, larger team of people that is living in the community in New York, you're going to be able to see and experience, you know, um, like the, the culture and the community of sneakers as it happens regularly. Right. And this is something that I always kind of talked about when I worked at finish line, like the competitive advantage that Foot Locker has over finish line, you know, from a kind of like just a high level perspective. Even if you're if you're an employee at finish line and you work out of the headquarters in Indianapolis, you don't really see, you know, sneakers on a regular basis. You have to go downtown to see people wearing them. You've got to be near the college campuses. You've got to be putting in a lot more effort to find people that are, I would say, you know, like like on the trend of whatever hot sneakers are hot. Um, and. The opposite is the case for Foot Locker because their headquarters are based right in Manhattan. You can't walk to the train without seeing a ton of people wearing the newest, you know, hottest shoes. So for Nike to say, we're going to put 100 people in, you know, Manhattan to kind of live this, you know, experience and work on this is, you know, commendable to me because that's how you're going to really like shape the the future of this stuff you know like you could you could look back at like all the way back to like the early days of like you know um nike basketball and like john jay and and bobito and those guys really shaped the culture of sneakers through their love for basketball in new york city like that shaped everything that came out of nike's creative at that time because they were really out there putting the ads up, you know, connecting with people in ways that you just didn't see other people doing it. And hopefully that's the 2020 version of, of that for Nike, you know, moving this team to, to New York and, and kind of giving them the, the full immersion in what that means for the brand. Yeah. See, my only, my only thing I would change about that is that New York cool understand us. I mean, 
that's probably one of your biggest markets, but why not open something similar? Maybe not a hundred employees for each location, but why not open one of these in like ma- every major metropolitan area? Like why not have one of these in LA? Why not have one in Atlanta? Why not have one in Houston? Why not have one in Miami? Because as you, as you mentioned, people will start inferring things from different stereotypes about what sneakers are being worn or what type of shoes being worn in a region. Why not put people who on the ground in those specific areas so where you can actually give a true visibility of what's being worn because i mean if you come to houston you'll see that it's not i mean yes you still have a very high population of air force ones because of the cost and they're still stylish but there's a there's been a very huge emergence in high fashion sneakers there's been you know a, a stupid amount of surges in 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 jordan ones over the past couple of years, like I feel like that this should be something that should be spread out to get a true, again, again a true visibility of what the consumers are doing if they're trying to regionalize deals. I mean, one example that did a great regional product that, that Nike just that just did was the the Kyrie Six. Um, from from just first look, I mean, they were able to capture those cities in a nutshell. Like I look at the Houston pair. And it captures like this. Some of those things that you have, like the on the strap, the gold strap that represents like the the different, you know, the, the wheels on the on the you know custom old school cars that a lot of people guys have. You look at the inside of one of the medial sides. I can't remember the left or right shoe, but there's actually a, the an embossed like wheel. You can see the spokes and everything in gold, and it's really cool that it took the time to think about each region before they put these eleven shoes out. And just think what you can do if you had a hub at each of these locations. It'd be, I mean, who knows what they're going to do in the future, but I just, if they don't, haven't thought about it, this would be something that Nike should do. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I, I think that that's the future of successful retailers and brands, right? Is like really having people, you know, fully immersed in like the, the you know, lifestyle that they're portraying, right? Because if you think about, you know, the future of like work, a majority of people aren't going to need to physically be in a specific space, right? Like, yeah, if you're designing, you know, if you're, if you're, a, you know, footwear designer, you're going to have to be in Portland where the rest of the footwear designers are. But you can also share a lot of designs digitally or, you know, like through kind of these, um, you know, I think of like Adidas and the Brooklyn Creator Farm, right? Like, they're kind of removed from the headquarters in Portland because it gives them a little bit more leeway, a little bit more freedom to get a little creative and get a little crazier with the designs. And at the same time, it gives people, you know, that are working there, the experience of being in Brooklyn, you know, it's that that changes everything about the way you think about how people use your product. And, you know, I think that the the success of a lot of these brands And a lot of even just the smaller like boutique retailers, right? Like the more they're able to spread out and and have small teams of people, you know, relative to the the size of the company itself, small teams of people that that can kind of experience these places and these communities and and what goes on in these in these, you know, like such like diverse subcultures that exist that are still all connected to like sneakers. But it's such a different, you know, like everybody has like things that they love about where they're from and to be able to kind of highlight those things, like you said, whether through a design or through the storytelling aspect of it or, you know, you know, just imagine like dropping, you know, I just think of like here in L.A., like, you know, Nike pulls up and and starts dropping sneakers out of a taco cart. Like that's a win. Like we're all going to show up and line up. 100%, because, yeah. Like even if I can't get the shoes, I'm copping a couple of tacos. You know, like that's how it works. Yeah, so, <laughs> I'm winning somewhere. They eat a taco or sneakers. Yeah. So um, I think you're dead on. I think it's it's going to be a really it's a it's a huge opportunity for the companies to like Nike or Adidas or you know any others to to really do that and do it well. And and I think giving employees the freedom to you know experience a different space outside of kind of the traditional, like, you know, corporate headquarters in Portland or whatever, wherever that may be, is always going to result in, 
happier employees and, and, you know, better things for, for the, you know, the bigger picture. Boom. Well, Nike, y'all heard this. So you, when you open up in San Francisco, when you open up in LA, open up here in Houston, you got, uh, you, you got your first two workers. So just, just know that. <laughs> yeah. Hopping over to the other side of the, uh, of the river up there in Portland, we're going to talk about Adidas again. Adidas launched the Futurecraft Loop. Uh, I want to say in April of this year. Um, and essentially like the shoe is completely recyclable, right? Yes. This is something that they've been working on for quite a while. And, um, I mean, it's just commendable. I think it's one of the most awesome things that's going on in the space. You know, I, I think that to think about how shoes disappear is something that, you know, is long overdue. If you ever listen to like, um, my podcast with, with Jacques Slade and Tiffany beers, we talked about that on outside the box a, a lot. Um, because you can make things out of, you know, all sorts of different materials, but if at the end of the day, none of it can be recycled in like the traditional ways, then it kind of ends up causing the same problem as every other shoe. So the future craft loop is basically, um, Adidas way of creating a hundred percent recyclable shoe. It's a, you know, it's a performance runner. It's, it's kind of, I would say it's kind of like speed factory meets ultra boost in a lot of ways, but just, you know, recyclable. Um, and the first version came out earlier this year and it was sent out to, I think they said 200 people, um, to test it out. And they just announced that the second generation of the future craft loop coming out this, this this week or next week, I think. This month it says so. This month, but do you know what it's made out of? I was I was reading some more. I didn't realize so what Adidas did was the all the people who did the wear test for that future craft loop, the original, the Gen 1, once they returned them to Adidas, they melted them down, fused the remains together to make the second generation. So the generation two is actually made from hundred percent recycled generation ones yeah yeah it's so i mean this is just amazing to me that's insanely cool why you never see that i mean i'm probably on the you know more uh liberal side when it comes to recycling like it's a big part of my life and it always has been i carry you know i'm i'm one of those people that carries their own straws like i just ordered some uh some like you know stainless steel like credit card silverware so i don't have to use plastic silverware when i'm out like you know i, I just think like if i can make a little bit of a difference it, it makes sense for me and um so this is one of those things that i just like kind of nerd out about it's like man how do we how do we do this for more shoes how do we just you know continue on um doing this but it it, it really uh it, it was really interesting to read this article. Um, we'll link in the description, but uh, there's a there's a quote that basically says, um, "I'm trying to trying to see who who said this." Um, essentially, the the quote was, "We intentionally kept Gen One very natural to speak to the sustainability aspect. For Gen Two, we took a slightly different approach to show that sustainability doesn't have to be a restriction on design. We infused color in a process called dope dyeing." called dope dyeing or solution dyeing where you add the dye to the polymer granules as you're spinning the fibers it's like pushing spaghetti or play-doh through holes and as you see the fibers coming out they change color gradually um so this was um what's his name here uh darren darren Kairupanatham. i don't know how to pronounce his name but <laughs> you know who you are, sir. Yeah, but um, he, he followed up and said, this will help us learn on the impact of color on recyclability. When we get these shoes back, we'll truly understand what the impact of including this blue has on the process with the recycled material coming out. It's like so over the top forward thinking and, and you know, paying attention to all the details that you don't really think about in terms of what it would take to create a a truly sustainable recyclable shoe i don't know man it's i think it looks pretty dope too to be honest yeah it's a, it's a clean looking shoe um i like the way the boost raises up in the medial side right at the like the arch of your foot to give a little bit more support and it's pretty cool looking 
to my favorite part of the shoe actually <laughs> yeah and i think the the color is really interesting like the you know kind of like gradient fade stripes is, is really interesting um yeah it's just just kind of an exciting thing to see happening you know like there's there's only a handful of things that happen every year where you can really like like see the, the the way that things are being pushed forward in the footwear business and this is definitely one of them yeah definitely and uh they did some good they made it look nice so i mean that's all you can ask for yeah speaking of nice things um <laughs> i guess uh you know two thousand dollar air jordans is going to be a thing next year so um mike you want to um you want to get into this one <laughs> Man, look, y'all already trying to raise the price of my Air Jordan 1. Now you're going to come out with a Dior version that's going to be $2,000. Um, I mean, someone's going to buy it. We, we, we're going to moan and complain about it, but it's limited to a stock of 1,000 uh, pairs. They're going to release in June of next year. But, I mean, I, I guess this is Nike's answers to... Uh, Adidas doing a project with Prada that's going to be coming out here in the near future, but this is a very select. Um, I don't. I don't want to say audience for this shoe. I don't see. I have no need for it. I'm not a big high fashion sneaker person, whatsoever. I, I, I like my athletic shoe. I like the originals. I like just how they were, and I don't need to spend two grand on a sneaker by any means. But I mean, this isn't the first time we've seen Jordan do this at all. I mean, I think last year you had the two pair of Vogue slash Anna Wintour Jordan 3s. I think there might have been a Jordan 1 as well. Uh, you had the, you know, pinnacle releases that were $400 plus. You know, I think it all started with the Ben 23s back in the day. I mean, they've definitely done their part in the do like a, you know, try to elevate their brand to the more of the higher quality, higher fashion. But personally, it's not for me. Uh, I have no need for anything of that nature. So what, what about you, Nick? How do you feel about that? I mean, I think it's interesting. I think that I think that everybody is trying to figure out, not everybody. Let me start that over. I think that the high-end like luxury brands are trying to figure out how to be a, more of a part of sneaker culture, streetwear culture, kind of this like, you know, this kind of world that most of us live in because there's more, there's more people in it. There's more cus customers in, in this world. So um, sneakers and the resale stuff has driven prices of a lot of shoes, you know, up towards this kind of crazy $2,000 price point. Um, I don't think there's a lot of people paying that price, but you know, this story, which we'll link in the description, you know, claiming that it's going to be limited to a thousand pairs. You know, there's definitely a thousand people that are willing to pay two grand for a pair of Jordan ones. So I would expect that this will be one of those shoes that resells for four or five thousand dollars. And, you know, the PJ Tuckers of the world will be playing in it. And, you know, everybody that's that's a, you know, like celebrity influencer type person is going to be wearing them. I feel like we're doing we're, we're seeing this all over the place. So it's not like an exciting thing. I'm not mad at it. It's, it's not really targeted towards me. I can't imagine ever spending $2,000 on a pair of Jordans. You know, it's just one of those things that it, uh, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah, it is what it is. I don't think this is, you know, I don't think this is the last time we'll see a crazy, you know, like high end, brand collaboration you know it, it's it's really like a common thing throughout the years even <laughs> thinking back to like you know like nike doing high-end you know like the the supreme 95s that just came out those kind of go back to you know when nike tried to do it on their own and now the way that collaborations work it makes more sense to have a dior attached to it that you know you can you can justify the high price justify it. yeah exactly so um, and, and, you know, like this is, this is kind of like, like we talked about a little bit before, you know, it's just, it's just a thing. It's going to happen. It's going to continue to happen. You know, like people are, you know, looking at, I, I think like, you know, these brands see 
people like the, the shoe surgeon or dank customs jake doing you know crazy rebuilds of shoes with premium materials and um you know uh, hoop fresh on instagram like all three of those guys and you know i'm i'm can't name every customizer that's doing really cool shit right now but like there's so many people that are literally rebuilding shoes from from the ground up with like premium materials and custom colors and you know adding a ton of value to a shoe that you know probably does cost a couple thousand dollars for somebody to buy it but then you're buying a shoe that's almost like a one-off at that point from those guys and you know a lot of times is a one-off with the exception of you know a few of them that do maybe small size small runs of those you know builds but to me this is just the next attempt at somebody to kind of like stick their nose in and dip their toes in the culture and steal some like energy from the people that have been kind of living in this footwear business for a long time, but it is what it is. It's keep happening. I can't be mad at it. I, I don't, I don't care about it one way or the other, to be honest. Like if you like it, then buy it. If you don't, then it's all good. Keep it moving. Yeah. You don't have to buy it. That's what we'll make that very clear. Just because it's out there, you know what I mean? You had to go spend money on it. No one's twisting your arm. Yeah. I mean, and it's, there's people out there that want to do that. You know, like I can't, you know, I can't knock somebody for saying like, they're going to have one pair of Jordan ones that cost them two grand. And, you know, myself have 20 pairs that cost me, you know, two grand as well. You know, like it's, it's no different. Right? So yeah. Um, maybe so if I have 20 options and you have one option now, <laughs> honest, maybe they're smarter than me. Cause then they don't have to deal with storage. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, man. I, I would love to hear what everybody else thinks about this one though, because it is a really interesting thing. And honestly, like any of the stuff that we touched in this, this episode, um, there's a lot of cool stuff going on, a lot of interesting stuff going on and, and just a lot of, uh, a lot of business, interesting business decisions in the, in the footwear world right now. So, uh, that said, what what uh what's on your radar this week, Mike? You you got anything that you're looking at? Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at more or less just because I think it's they it took them three times to get it right. I can't say I will buy it unless it's under retail. But the um, it comes out December second. It's the Jordan 14 Black Ferrari. Like they've done a yellow, they've done a red, but they just they didn't appeal to me. It was just they were smooth. There was no no texture, no depth to them. But the black pair. This is what it should have been the first time. It's a smooth black upper, but it's per perforations around the lateral side of it. Carbon fiber, like the, the carbon fiber claws or, you know, whatever they want to call on the midsole of 14. But then on the medial side is where it gets me. It's actually a quilted pattern that will remind you of the interior of a Ferrari. So they actually executed this one perfectly. Now, I'm not going to spend 200 bucks on it. I can see this in an outlet somewhere and I'll, I'll spend a hundred, 120 on it just cause I mean, it just was executed better. But only, only question would be, how's the glue going to be? Because I'm looking at pictures of it on sneaker news and you can already see the glue stains on their promo pair. Damn. <laughs> I was like, we're not a care anymore. The promo pair looks gross. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's one of like, that's one of the best 14s I've seen. Hopefully they do come out better than the the sample pair that probably those photos came from, but yeah. the concept is super dope. Um, I'm, I'm with you on that. Uh, so I, I actually, uh, I think my, my pick this week is actually the, uh, the ALD new balance 995 or 990 V5 and 990 V2. I called, uh, I, I don't know who called it this, but I, I tweeted it out yesterday and was like, yeah, it's like ALD is like kids for dads. Right. <laughs> I but, saw that. <laughs> uh, it, it's just like, it's just like one of those interesting things. Like I, they're a little bit more uppity than Kith. They're a little bit not nicer necessarily, but like the, the style is more, I guess, refined and a little less streetwear like, um, but I really love the the colors that they put together. It seems like every time they do a shoe, it's super dope. The colors are like understated, but like just enough to to really stand out to me. So um, the 990 V2 and the and the V5 uh, coming out, I think this weekend. So super dope. That's definitely my pick for the week. Yeah, those are good looking sneakers. Man. I saw both of them. 
Yeah, yeah. I uh I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a shot. Who who knows if I'll actually be able to get there. <laughs> that said, thank you all for listening. Um my name's Nick Ingvall. You can catch me at Nick Ingvall on all platforms, but more importantly, just follow at Sneaker History on all platforms. We've got uh upcoming event at uh in Anaheim next weekend. Designer Con will be there and have uh some giveaways and some just just a lot of randomness. I'm gonna be hosting a panel talking about how to kind of earn a living in the sneaker business and, you know, kind of turn your passion into a way to, to make a living. And so if you're in the LA area, Southern California area, um, check out designercon.com or you can find it on the sneaker history, Instagram page or Facebook page, wherever there's links all over the place, but we'll be there um, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. The panel will be on Saturday at 2 PM. I think I've got some good guests lined up, so um, it, it should be a good conversation and, yeah, just come by. We'll have some new merch too as well. Um, but anyway, yeah, Mike, let them know how they can find you. <laughs> yeah, Mike Guillory. Find me Sneaker History as well, but also find me on Instagram and Twitter at MadWatcher789. Right on. Well, we appreciate you all, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Peace. See you. What up, y'all? This is Nick again. Before you take off, I wanted to let you know of a few things that we've got going on for you here at Sneaker History. First off, you can save 15% off of Shrineco bag purchases on their website at theshrine.co using the code HISTORY15. The second thing is a favor. I wanted to ask you all to take just a couple of minutes to leave us a review on iTunes. Really, it's the only way that we're able to expand our audience and reach new people with this podcast. And we greatly appreciate all of you for taking just a couple of minutes out of your day to leave us a review. Whether it's good, bad, feedback, any of the above, we'll take it all and hopefully continue to make this podcast better for you with each and every episode. Last but definitely not least, do yourself a favor, do the community a favor, tell somebody that you like their shoes today. You never know how far that will go for somebody, and we all know how good it feels when we're recognized for wearing a fresh pair. So spread the love, and we'll keep doing the same. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Peace. Hey, hey, Nick here again. Before you take off, I want to thank you for listening to the Sneaker History Podcast. Be sure to hop into our Discord to answer this episode's The Last Shot question and get to know our community of sneaker enthusiasts. If you'd like more insights on the trending topics in the sneaker world, I've also recently started a newsletter to share my knowledge from nearly two decades of experience working in the footwear industry. You can find the link to that below or go to sneakerhistory.com newsletter. And last but not least, tell someone you like their kicks today. You never know how far a simple compliment can take you, and we all know how good it feels to be on the receiving end of some appreciation. Thank you for all the support, and we will catch you on the next episode. Peace.